0: Father, as we come to you this morning, it's because it's, it's in the realization that our only hope in this life is in you. You, have, you are the one who has rejuvenated our souls and spirits, who have brought us into a born-again relationship with yourself. You have uh, put in us eternal life, and for that we are so desperately grateful. And Father, we're grateful that you are present here this morning. You've promised that where two or three gather in your name, there you are in the midst. And so we know you're here, and we invite your Holy Spirit to remove anything and everything that would hinder our fellowship and our, particularly our focus on what you would say to us through your word today. And so we ask you to bless. We ask you to bless the service at this hour. Be with Kathy and Ruth, as they share the uh, part that they have and for the others that are taking part in this too. And Father, throughout this uh, business, this building today in every class, we ask that you will be present in a powerful way. And Father, we just give you thanks that we have freedom to gather as we can this morning here today. In Jesus name. Amen. If you'll turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Joshua I'll read beginning at verse 6. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow at this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came upon them suddenly by the waters of Merom and attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel so that they defeated them and pursued them as far as great Sidon and Mizrathoth-Mem and the valley of Mizpah to the east. And they struck them until no survivor was left to them. And Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Well, after the incredible defeat of the southern confederacy, and we studied through that, how God had miraculously enabled Joshua and his forces to have victory over these overwhelming forces. The Canaanites to the north knew that it was inevitable that Israel would turn in their direction. So the great and powerful city of Hazor, it was the largest in population, the largest in physical territory, and the strongest in defense of all the cities in all of Canaan at that particular time. And this city took the initiative to form a northern coalition of cities to fight Israel. So cities from the base of Mount Hermon to the north, all the way down into what is called the Arabah, the Jordan Valley, south of the Sea of Galilee, and clear across to the Mediterranean Sea at Dor, that whole region up there, which I mentioned to you last time was 1,500, 2,000 square miles of territory, That whole region sent their armies together at at Mount Merom, at what's called the waters of Merom. So they gathered rather centrally to, to all of the cities, not terribly far from Hazor itself. Their purpose in gathering was to plan an attack upon Israel. Now we're talking about a formidable force here. We're talking about a force that undoubtedly numbered in the tens of thousands of warriors and which included hundreds of horses and chariots, something that Israel had none of and had not had to face since the days that they were in Egypt. And with this force, this northern confederacy hoped to do what no one so far had been able to do, and that is to stop Israel. As I mentioned to you last time, these Canaanites had to view Israel as a vast plague of grasshoppers sweeping across the land in great destruction. But one of the things that's interesting about Joshua, he was a great commander of, of, of men, and he was unwilling to give the Canaanites the opportunity of first strike. And therefore, he brought his army up on that probable five-day march to the mountain of Marom, and launched a surprise attack on the gathered armies there. And as I mentioned to you last time, the the attack was a surprise and it was probably overwhelming, certainly not only because God was, was in it, because that obviously was the primary cause of victory, but because the The Canaanites were were probably at that point still ill-prepared. They probably hadn't yet defined the chain of command of their forces because this is a coalition of armies. And you can just imagine that every city-state sent its army with its commander, and its commander hoped to hold a fairly high rank in the unified army. He didn't want to be some lackey down at the bottom while somebody else was over him, and so they were probably still dealing with this. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the lord what are you o great mountain before zerubbabel you will become a plain and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace grace to it and also the word of the lord came to me saying the hands of zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house and his hands will finish it then you will know that the lord of hosts has sent me to you this Zerubbabel faced an impossible situation. Zerubbabel had led the first phase of the second exodus. You remember the first exodus, of course, was Israel coming out of uh, Egypt. The second exodus was Israel coming home, or Judah more specifically, coming home from Mesopotamia. They'd been carried into captivity by the Babylonians. And then the Persians had overthrown the Babylonians, and God had put it into the heart of Cyrus, of the Persians to release the Jews and allow them to go home if they wished. The the Persians, by the way, were very tolerant in their religious outlook. And God moved Cyrus to allow the Jews who would to go home. And Zerubbabel was the leader of that first phase of the return. Other phases would occur under Nehemiah and Ezra. But Zerubbabel's challenge was to rebuild the tabernacle, uh, yes, the temple, (laughs) to rebuild the temple, because the Temple of Solomon had been destroyed under Nebuchadnezzar. And so it was his job to rebuild. And And if you read back in Ezra, you discover that when he came to rebuild the temple, there were some enemies who came along and asked if they couldn't help him. And when he told them no, then they, they tried to hinder the work in every way they could. They did everything to stop the work. Now we're talking about a few Jews amongst a lot of people who don't want them to rebuild the, te- uh, the, the temple of God. And so that's the, the background. in. And Zechariah prophesied at that very hour. In fact, if you go back to Ezra, you'll read uh, that it, it uh, tells us that Zechariah prophesied at that moment. And, and this is what he said. It is not by might, it is not by power, it's by my spirit that this temple will be rebuilt. And if, if, if a mountain has to be made into a plain, it will be done. Well, the mountain that Joshua faced was just as great. Because although Israel now had some experience and had fought some battles, they were facing probably the mightiest force they would face at that particular time. Because these Canaanites were a warlike people. They were accustomed to war and they had the equipment and they had the training. And and so Joshua with his infantry was facing an army that was equipped with what we would today say equivalent to tanks, you know. And they didn't have any bazookas. (laughs) you know, to to knock out the tanks. So it was God who gave them the victory. You know, sure, Joshua surprised them and they weren't totally organized, but it was God who put the fear into the hearts of these Canaanites so that they scattered in front of Joshua. God is clearly sovereign in the affairs of men and of nations, and his ultimate plan will be carried out without fail. Let me read let me read a few words from Isaiah, chapter 14. Isaiah, if you may remember, was a prophet at another critical time in Israelite history. He was a prophet at the time that Assyria was attacking Judah. And he was the prophet, of course, who gave the word to Hezekiah that uh, not an arrow of Sennacherib's force would even fly over the wall of Jerusalem, which was an incredible promise. And so Isaiah is writing here, in the midst of a seemingly overwhelming power of this mighty nation of Assyria. And, and he says in verse 24, chapter 14, verse 24, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have atten- intended, so it has happened. Just as I have planned, so it will stand. To break Assyria in my land and i will trample him on the mountains then his yoke will be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulder this is the plan devised against the whole earth and this is the land and this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations for the lord of hosts has planned and who can frustrate it as for his stretched out hand who can turn it back who can turn it back we sometimes are tempted in this life of ours to assume that Satan has great power. Well, he does have great power, but that great power is totally controlled by God. And if God has chosen to do something, Satan and all his minions cannot thwart it. And, and of course, to, to the human perspective, there wasn't any way little old Judah and the little city of Jerusalem was going to stand against the mightiest army of that day. I don't, I don't know what kind of a comparison we could make. We could say it would be sort of like Liechtenstein. Y'all know where Liechtenstein is? It's a little country attached to Switzerland. You can cross it in 15 minutes by road. But it's like Liechtenstein standing in the face of the Nazi juggernaut in World War II, and not saying that happened. But I mean, let's just say that the Nazi forces decided to attack Liechtenstein, and they were defeated. Oh, that would have been amazing. Well, that's what this was like here. Here was Jerusalem. I mean, the king of of Assyria said, if you can even put 2,000 men on horseback, I'll give you the 2,000 horses. Now, if that isn't sticking it up your nose, you know. And yet God said through Isaiah, not a single arrow will fly over the wall of that city. And of course, as you know, the whole army was wiped out by sovereign power of God. And so it is for Joshua here. It's not that Israel had become such a good army. It's, it's not that the Israelite veterans were now able to stand toe-to-toe with the Canaanite veterans. It's that God put such a fear in the Canaanites when they saw Israel coming that they just fled. Left their chariots, left their horses, and ran. Canaanites were totally routed. They fled both to the northwest and the northeast, according to the passage of Scripture. Some fled into Lebanon, crossing the Mizraphoth main, which probably refers to the Latani River, which is on your map up here in the north, all the way up, we're told, to the region of Great Sidon, which, as you see, is north of the Latani River. And others fled to the northeast, over towards Mount Hermon, to the Valley of Mizpah, which was probably one of the valleys there at the base of the western slope of Mount Hermon. The enemy armies were decimated Even though many escaped to the northeast and the northwest, thousands were slain as they fled, and just as God commanded, the weapons of war were destroyed, the horses were, what what did I say, hamstrung, Hamstrung. there we go, hamstrung, and, and the chariots were burned. And now the big question would be this, why did God tell them to do that? I mean, now that Israel had horses and chariots, wouldn't they be a more formidable force? and even better able to conquer what was left of the land? Well, as they studied this, it seems that three reasons come forth as to why God commanded that these chariots and horses be destroyed. The first was that it was very common in the pagan world of that day for chariots and horses to be part of pagan worship, to be an essential extension of the gods themselves. There is kind of an oblique reference in 2nd kings i'll just turn there and read read the verse to you 2nd kings chapter 23 verse 11 where we read and he did give and he did away with the horses which the kings of Judah had given to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord and by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the official which was in the precincts and he burned the chariots of the sun with fire Of course, this is in reference specifically to the concept which was ancient and and was practiced often in Egypt, the belief that the sun was carried across the sky in a chariot every day. And so chariots and horses were often dedicated to the sun. And this was probably true in the case of the Canaanites too. And so they were destroyed because they were viewed as extensions of pagan worship but I think, secondly, God had them destroy these, these formidable weapons because he did not want Israel to become a militarized nation with military professionals, with a military elite aristocracy that would dominate the rest of the people, which was common in the world at that time and has not become uncommon today, as we probably know. To have a, a military elite with, who had the weapons controlling the nation. That was not the way God planned Israel to function and therefore he didn't want them having these particular weapons. And then thirdly, uh, and I think most importantly of all, God did not want them to say, look at all the chariots and horses we've got here uh, so we could just go to war whenever we want and defeat whomever we wish without even any reference to God. He did not want them to depend on their own military might on their ability to defeat the enemy. He wanted them to remain ever dependent upon God. You know, that flies directly in the face, does it not, of our society. Our society is, has the idea that you should become strong and independent, self-sufficient, whereas in God's economy, we are to become ever more dependent upon Him because He is the source of life, the source of strength, the source of all hope. And so it is upon him that we must lean and and that we must depend. And he wanted Israel to. Uh, Let me just uh, read quickly a a couple of verses that uh, kind of underscore this. Psalm 20, verse 7, we read, Some boast in chariots and some in horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord our God. That, I think, is the bottom line to the reason that God wanted them to destroy these horses and chariots. They may boast in their horses and they in their chariots, but we boast in the Lord our God. I mean, you could put that right smack on this event. Because the Canaanites boasted their horses and chariots. What good did it do them? None at all. Isaiah, in the 31st chapter, the first verse, we read these. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are strong but they do not look to the holy one of israel nor seek the lord woe to them and we can see i think i hope how that relates to us today You and I can trust in our wealth. We can trust in our education. We can trust in our natural sense of how to keep our balance. We can trust in all kinds of things. And God does not want us to trust in those things because he can take any of it away from us like that. He wants us to trust in him. Whatever are the the horses and the chariots that we're tempted to trust in, he wants us to lean on him alone and not at all on the things of human existence. Well, let's read on in the 11th chapter of Joshua here, beginning at verse 10. Then Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of these kingdoms. And they struck every person who was in it with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying them. And there was no one left Who breathed, and he burned Hatzor with fire, and Joshua captured all the cities of these kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword and utterly destroyed them, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded. However, Israel did not burn any cities that stood on their mounds, or literally the Hebrew word there is tell, except Hatzor alone, which Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the cattle, the sons of Israel who took the, the sons of Israel took as their plunder. But they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. They left no one who breathed. Just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, so Joshua did. And he left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And we can say, just as the Lord commanded Paul, and Paul commanded us through his writings, so we did. Well, after ret- returning, or in returning from pursuing the Canaanites dozens of miles to the north, Joshua launched an attack upon the now defenseless city of Hazor. Although it was a mighty city, as I mentioned to you before, with the great double walls and, and an acropolis with a, with a great glossus around it. And although it was the largest populated city in the whole area, it was now defenseless because his army had been shattered and destroyed. Other cities that had participated in the Northern Confederation were also captured and destroyed. And all, we're told, the populations of all these cities were put to the sword. They were wiped out. However, we discover something unique about Hatzor. Since it was the most powerful city, since it had led in the creation of this northern alliance against Israel, Joshua chose to make an example of it. So we're told that of all the cities, only Hazor was put to the torch. Only it was burned. And I should say that archaeologists confirm the significance of this, because after this, Hazor was never rebuilt in the lower city. Only the upper city, the top of the tell, the Acropolis. Would be rebuilt. The lower city would never be rebuilt. The lower city existed for about 500 years up until the time of Joshua. And, and so today, if you visit the Tell, you'll discover that there's a lot of archaeological work going on on the top of some, of course, as going along at the base, but you, you don't see much evidence of a city being around the base of, of the city, uh, that is, of the Tell. As a practical matter, we're reminded in verse 14 of this passage that Israel was allowed to keep all the cattle and all the plunder of all these cities. Now just imagine, if you capture and plunder a city of 40,000 people, you're probably going to find a few things there that you might want to keep. You know, I mean, it was a great trading center. As I mentioned before, it was a crossroads and major trade routes came into Hatsor. It was the prime city for being a, what, what would be called a, a caravansary, if you were over in the, uh, the eastern world. And so it would have been a city of uh, undoubtedly great wealth. And so it, it had to amount for these soldiers, it had to amount to a, a tremendous collection of wealth here that they gathered from all these cities, from Doran the coast to Baalgad in the north, And they drug it all back to Gilgal. Drug it all back to Gilgal. Must not have been a real easy task. Good thing they had all those animals to help cart it. Can you imagine what Gilgal was like? I mean, it must have become a veritable treasure city. As they brought back stuff from southern Canaan, and they bring back stuff from northern Canaan, bring it all together at Gilgal. They must have been stumbling over stuff, you know, that they had brought. And and each family was greatly enriched with the booty that poured in from all of Canaan. Of course, it would go back to all of Canaan as they would eventually go out and and the land would be apportioned. It would be taken back there. But it's gathered all here at Gilgal. They lived at Gilgal for seven years. This camp became a relatively permanent camp. In verse 15, we're reminded of something that's very important throughout Scripture and is often, is generally emphasized And and we're told here that Joshua obeyed the commands of the Lord as delivered by Moses. He obeyed them. He did what God asked him to do. Now, we have to understand, Joshua had his weaknesses. Joshua failed from time to time, and we saw a glaring instance of it in, in the case of Gibeon. But Joshua's heart was set on obedience. Joshua's heart was set on obedience. And I think that is a very, very powerful lesson to us. And I think we need to ask us, ourselves, that question. Are our hearts set upon obedience? Do we plan obedience or does it just kind of accidentally happen when suddenly we discover God wants us to do something? Does it pain us when we fail to obey? Do we really feel like we have offended the Almighty When we don't do what he's asked us to do. And if we do fail, do we repent immediately or soon and renew our commitment to obedience and say, God, by your strength, I will obey your word. We know God is very merciful and very gracious and he's constantly picking us up after we fall down because we're always falling down. And and we're very grateful that. But that doesn't mean we should trust in the fact God picks us up every time we fall down. Instead, our commitment should be to obedience. But, you know, as we look at each other throughout the body of Christ, we know that we're not all at the same place. Some people have walked with the Lord obediently for a very long time. Others, uh, their lives in Christ have been very short. And so we're commanded to help each other along. You know, our job is not to say, look at he fell. We're, we're to help pick the one up who falls. Let me just read a couple of passages of Scripture from the New Testament that uh, kind of stood out to me as I was thinking of this theme. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, we read these words. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. Isn't that what we're tempted to do? If somebody socks you, what is your first inclination? Probably to sock him back, at least if you're a male. But always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. (coughs) I forgot to read verse 14. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all men. (laughs) Now that's a tough one, isn't it? Be patient with all people. It's real easy to be impatient, you may have noticed. And to say, why don't they wake up and smell the roses? What's taking them so long? And yet, if we look at our own lives, we can say, whoops, <laughs> how long has it taken me? And how often will I fail? When, when it says there, um, admonish the unruly, can, can any of us say that we have not been unruly or undisciplined? This is one of the things I, I have to pray for frequently is God help me to learn to be a disciplined person because it's not nature, uh, for many of us anyway, it's not our nature to be disciplined. So as you read these two verses here and, and of course, through, throughout this, this chapter, we see the interdependence here. The fact that we are to shore each other up, to help each other, to, to be alongside one another. And and then over in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, verses 11 to 13, we read, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We're to help each other find healing. And that, of course, is all ultimately rooted in our heart's desire to be obedient. Let me next, uh, read the next few verses in um, Joshua 11, verse 16. Then Joshua took all that land, the hill country, and all the Negev, and all the land of Goshen. By the way, this is not the Goshen they were living in and over in Egypt. This is a Goshen in southern Judah. The lowland, the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel and its lowland. From Mount Halak that rises towards Seir, even as far as Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. You know, as we read the passage, it sounds like, wow, you know, wham, bang, it was all done. There was not a city which made peace with the sons of Israel, except the Hivites living at Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle in order that he might utterly destroy them that they might receive no mercy, but that he might destroy them, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. This passage gives us an important summary of Israel's conquests in the land of Canaan. From Mount Halak, which was 45 miles south of Hebron, about the same latitude as Kadesh Barnea, to Gad, which was 10 miles north of Dan, which wasn't even in existence yet, but was north of uh, the Sea of Galilee, north of what was then Lake Hula. Baal Gad is a funny, funny name. Baal means Lord and Gad means fortune. Town of the Lord of good fortune. Hmm. Not so fortunate for those who lived there as Israel attacked. Israel took all of the cities, all of the towns, all of the villages It was a systematic conquest, and it took years to complete. You know, as you read through these chapters in Joshua, you can almost get the feeling like it was, wow, I mean, they did this whole thing in six months. No, they didn't do it in six months. And in the process of conquest, only the city of Gibeon and its satellites made peace with Israel. Now, we'll discover from later passages that there were other little nodes here and there which Israel did not conquer, not because those peoples or those cities made peace with Israel, but because Israel failed to obey God in the ultimate. Now, there may have been other cities who said to to Israel, let's let's have peace. We we see how powerful you are. Let's just have peace. But, you know, Israel had been burned in the case of Gibeon. And they were aware of any scam and of any attempt to avoid carrying out God's command. And so no city was able to make peace with Israel. The other cities that made no attempt and and did resist Israel, I think they did so because they hoped, they hoped and prayed that their gods were stronger than the other Canaanite gods that had not been able to defeat Yahweh and that their God maybe could defeat Yahweh. And so they resisted to the bloody end. Literally, bloody end to the death of every man, woman, and child. Verse 20 of this passage helps us to understand that God confirmed them in their resistance to Israel and to himself so that they would be annihilated. And the passage said that God did not show mercy to them. But we have to understand that since God is a God of mercy, that does not mean that God didn't show the Canaanites mercy at all. He did. He gave them 400 years of mercy. 400 years to turn. And 400 years they had rejected the light of his revelation. All of them rejected the Lord. As far as we have record in Scripture anyway, they all rejected except Rahab. And her family, of all, they were the only ones that had turned from their idolatry and submitted to the God of Israel. You know, as I studied this, a lot of passages in the New Testament just keep coming back to mind. And this is not an unfamiliar passage to you, but in the first chapter of Romans, it just is so perfect in its description here that I thought it's, it's important for us to bring this verse into the context of God hardening the hearts of these pagans and causing them to fight to the bloody end and to be annihilated. First chapter of Romans, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. By the way, let me just throw in a little insight as I see it anyway today. There has been, in the 19th and 20th century, a blatant attempt to specifically blunt this passage of Scripture, these two verses. This blatant attempt has been energized by Satan, and it has the imprimatur of modern science. And that is the whole concept of evolution. And all that goes along with it is an attempt to obliterate the image of God on this creation. You go to the pagan peoples all over the world, and they see a God... They may not understand it to be the God of the Bible, but they see a God. They they see forces greater than they who have made it all. They understand that. Yet here we are in our modern world with the scripture available to us, and we purposely, categorically set out to destroy that image by, by confusing it, by obliterating it, by saying that it all happened by chance, blind chance. If that isn't from the pit, I don't know what is from the pit. For even though they knew about God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You go over to Luxor in egypt and you'll discover there's a stele there on top of which is a scarab which is a dung beetle big scarab dung beetle you know And, and the scarab was a sacred image to the egyptians crawling creatures you know worship crawling creatures therefore god gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The Canaanites truly worshipped the creature rather than the creator. Their worship of man and beast is so bloody and so perverted that to describe it is, is vulgar. The Canaanites sinned not only by rejecting God's revelation in creation. But they also rejected the law of God that was embossed on their own consciences. As we read in Ecclesiastes, God has put eternity in their hearts. People have a natural sense of life going on beyond this life. And they rejected the manifestation of His pow- power and His reality in the miracles that they saw God perform for Israel. I mean, what do you need? Bam! Bam! There it is. This is the God. But your heart is blind. Your your eyes are blind. Your heart is dark. You can't see. Could they have believed? Yes, they could have believed. Rahab did. And who was Rahab? She not only was a Canaanite, she was a harlot. In his sovereignty, God confirmed the Canaanites in their unbelief and and unrepentance, just as he hardened the heart of Pharaoh. There's an exact parallel here. In fact, the Hebrew word, which is translated heart- pardon me, hardened in this passage is also the same Hebrew word that is translated hardened Pharaoh's heart in Exodus chapter 14. God hardened their hearts in their unrepentance because they refused to to turn. Therefore, God confirmed them in that, said you have now signed your eternal destiny. And so he judged the Canaanites just as he judged the world in Noah's day and just as Christ will judge the world in the last days. It's all the same. Let me just read today in the last passage before we pray from the third chapter of John. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment, that the light is come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does, who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. That is why people will reject the light even when it shines on them. (laughs)